So this weekend I want to more explore together with you how habits and urges, how our conditioning, which comes from the way we acted in the past, how that shapes this moment and how this moment meaning all all of that which is happening in your life, not only right now, also right now, but like a bit more general. And how our response to where we find ourselves in our life right now then shapes our future. Not only the way we perceive what is happening, but also our habitual responses to what is happening. Sometimes people think karma is kind of a cosmic law which makes the things happening in our life. But that's, that's actually not the case. What karma is talking about is that we are co-creators of the reality we live in through the way we perceive things. And the way we perceive things is shaped by how we acted in the past. Yeah and how we responded to what was happening in the past to us creates habit to respond to similar situation in the same way. So karma is not like an outside law, it is an attempt to describe how we co-create reality moment by moment. And this becomes more understandable when we understand that What is happening in your life, in each moment, doesn't have any meaning from its own side. Meaning giving is a conceptual conceptual capacity we have. It comes from our side. So we create the meaning and then we respond to that meaning. And we respond to that meaning through habits, because we have responded before in the same way. So usually when we read the traditional teachings on karma, there's more talking about exploring how you acted in the past. But in this weekend also I want to include into that exploration in this weekend not only how we acted in the past but also what happened to us in the past. So in this weekend, I want to explore a bit the overlap of trauma-informed practice and karma. It's not exactly the same, but there's a lot of overlap. And both is difficult because it asks us to be willing to look at ourselves, honestly. Not only in in terms of how we act and how we did act, but also to have a willingness to look what has happened to us. And let's stick there in this life. And that's difficult because one of the most important drive within us Instinctual drive is to avoid pain. That's what we do. It's natural. 
So we have a strong instinct not to look into our blind spots. We have an instinct not to look into pain. And sometimes in some teachings that is even supported, you know, like if you, if you talk about trauma-informed Dharma practice, then people think, well, the past is finished. It's, why do we indulge in things which happened in my, uh, in my childhood? That's, I can meditate myself out, out of this. Yeah? I can meditate myself out of my pain, of my struggle, of my anxiety, of my depression. The problem is it doesn't work. And that's, I mean, I'm not sure of anything, but I'm pretty sure of that. So one, so there's many things I would bring in our, into our awareness during this weekend, but one, one of the things I want to bring into our awareness is our tendency to use spiritual teachings not to do what they actually meant to do, but to kind of try to bypass or overjump the painful, the stuck, the unresolved in us. Both karma and trauma talk about the unresolved in us, the not integrated in us. It talks about those processes within us we are not aware of. So this is not a good feel uh, uh, weekend. Of course, in a way, we hope probably, like by, as many people do, they see Buddhism as a kind of philosophy, something we learn, something we understand. And in the same way, karma, the teachings on karma can be used. Yeah? So you can read books on karma and you try to understand it and then you get some solidity, security in, ah, now I understand how things work, now I understand why things are like this in my life. Or we can tell other people, yeah, so what you're experiencing, it's your karma. And uh, these teachings and this kind of uh, superficial understanding of karma can be used to disconnect from how you feel, and disconnect from how other people feel. You just don't want to feel the pain of the other person. You say to that person, yeah, it's all empty, it's your karma, be happy, you can purify karma. And you stay in the head, you stay disconnected from the body. So both uh, the work with karma, the work with trauma, calls for embodiment, calls for curiosity in the body. Because these subtle patterns which shape how we perceive things and how we respond to things and how we feel about things, these subtle patterns which are grown from how we acted and felt in the past, it's obvious, I mean, yeah, the urges in you to act or what you are drawn to, to which kind of people you are drawn to, to which kind of situations you are drawn to. Obviously, that is not coming out of the blue. It's connected with your history, with your psychological history. And these patterns, 
unresolved and not integrated experiences, incomplete experiences, where are they? Yeah? Where are they stored? They definitely, we can feel it every day, how we are governed by urges, by habits, how we misperceive people and situations, how we bring just uh, over some uh, very simple, simplified situation. How do we bring our relationship to our father, the incomplete, not integrated, all the feelings of anger which we didn't suppress as children, of pain? It's obvious to see that in your relationship, you often doesn't, you don't respond, you're disconnected from that person, from that situation, but you're in that prison of your own patterns, of your own perceptions. And your poor partner gets that which your father deserved when you were five, but of course you couldn't do it back then. So where are these patterns, this conditioning, these unresolved wounds? They are in the body. They are, when we talk about the teachings on karma, what they do usually in the, in the traditional teachings, they refer to a particular school, the Yogashara school, or Shittamatrin, or mind-only school, one of the major philosophical schools within Buddhism, and in that school, they describe um, the mind having three levels. You know, there is that very coarse level of the daily, the daily mind, the daily life mind. But then there is a more subtle level, which can be seen a bit what we call in the West the unconscious. And then there is the very, very subtle mind. Yeah? the Buddha nature. This unresolved stuff, according to the Yogashara school, is stored, it's also the, the English word is storehouse consciousness, is stored in that subtle level. It doesn't go away until we go through it. The way out is to go through, both in karma and in trauma. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to go through. We want to bypass it. We want to transcend it. We want to go towards the light. We want to dissolve into the Buddha nature without feeling the unresolved in the Alaya Vijnaya. So if you want to localize the Alaya Vijnaya, it's the body. And that's what trauma research shows. Working with karma means to bring into your practice the courage and the willingness to meet your inner life as it is. And that, as I said, is not natural in a way. So we really need to encourage ourselves and being encouraged by others to do this healing and purification work. 
What is also what I also want to look at this uh, uh, doing this weekend is there is collective trauma and collective karma, and I think for us, not only for Dharma practitioner but for everyone, it's really helpful to look into trauma research to start to understand yourself and others, but also what is happening in society. Both are very complex topics, uh, trauma research trauma, um, and uh, karma, the teachings on karma. So I hope I, I, will, make you, I will make you a bit curious. Yeah. It's funny because of the complexity of this uh, topic, uh, I actually, I don't know when I have done that, that la the last time, I prepared the whole week. Yeah. So I, I t just tell you what I read. Yeah. So maybe you can do your own research. So the first is, of course, I read the teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the foundation of Buddhist uh, practice. I think the book. Very boring. Yeah. But you know, I, I need to. I need to because. Yeah, we have read that somewhere else. All yeah, and it's uh, it's as always. You always have the sense in this traditional teachings you are not really met. Yeah, you are not because, and that makes and that makes really sense because these teachings were developed for another kind of psyche, not the Western psyche. So it's it's all so heady and it's all based on understanding and and it's yeah and it's it's just like we feel wow this is this is not it's not uh, it's um, I I don't feel uh, I don't feel seen in this teaching yeah? I can't experience what is said. So that was the first one. Then I actually bought a book last week. It's one of the few uh, Buddhist books uh, which have karma as their main topic, and it's, uh, it's actually called Karma, and it's by Tralek Rinpoche. I, I, I like him, uh, so I knew, I, I read some of his teachings. He's, he, he lived in the United States, and uh, he, he was very good in bringing Western thought and Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist thought together, and he, he spoke fluently English. Uh, so, so I read that. And then I went to uh, the website of Alex Burson, uh, which I often do when I uh, talk about something like karma or what did I talk last time? It was something similar. Death, yeah, death and dying. It's actually very connected because, you know, the last weekend around uh, about death and dying. Because when we look into karma and patterns, then we, and of course, the topic of rebirth comes up. Yeah, particularly when we look into the traditional teachings on karma. Yeah, so we. Uh, with the teachings on karma, we broaden our perspective, we, we open our perspective beyond this one life. Yeah? We see a, a, like a bigger, a bigger continuity. And actually, from the Yogashara point of view, to answer the, the question, what is being reborn, which 
which you know, we had discussions about and explorations about and having no answer in a way. From the Yogashara uh, point of view, the answer is it is that stream of the Alaya Vijnaya, which, which is not cut with, with, uh, with death, but it goes on. Yeah? So not only the unresolved stuff we carry in our body messes up our life now, it's going to up it's going to mess up more than just one life if it's not being healed. And what we need to understand is what we want to heal, we need to touch. There is nowhere around it. And it's, it's the most scary work to be ruthlessly honest and to insist on meeting yourself, looking inside. So what we, of course, are now doing this weekend also need to explore what are healing, uh, what are healing ways to look at our inner life. Basically, the work with trauma and karma is about interrupting these patterns of responding, finding a little gap, and with that, from that gap to respond to the situation differently, more kindly more lovingly. So, just a simple example. If you have been... If you have a, a, a strong urge coming up of hatred in the moment where you're criticized, so now we could look at this from a trauma point of view and from a karma point of view. So from a karma point of view, that strong urge of hatred, like, you know, fight, you know, the fight, the fight response is easily available for you because it has been available easily for you in the past. So there comes this response of hatred. Very difficult to develop the courage and the willingness to meet the hatred in you. Even particularly if we feel, oh, I'm such a kind person. I don't harm others, particularly since I'm a Buddhist. So when an urge in us arises, and that's no, that's the precious human life. We have a bit of a choice. Yeah? And we can increase that window of freedom. It's difficult. It's really difficult. Because these patterns of reacting, they are so strong. They are hardwired in our brain. 
It's very difficult to pause in, in moments like that and go into the pain. Not only the pain of the hatred, but we need to go even deeper than that. We need to go into that which want, the hatred wants to protect. The wound behind, the helplessness behind. Yeah. So, and then when we do that, when we strengthen that capacity to pause, then other option becomes available. And we might start by being less sharp in what we say, being less contemptful in what we say. So that's the beginning. You know, that's how you purify karma. So we need to look at that. What can, what can help us there? How can we do that? And we need to really support our intention to do that because it's so difficult. Because, as I said, we have an instinctual need to avoid pain. And we do everything to avoid pain. It needs a lot of encouragement, a lot of reminders, a lot of being together with other people who, uh, who do the same. Tonight, I want to talk about, and in our first meditation, experiment and play with one really, really important part in this investigation of karma and trauma, and that is to create a safe place. Because in both, in what is called purification of karma or healing of trauma, we need to feel safe. Because what we need to, we need to develop the capacity to be tenderly present to what is happening without being overwhelmed by it. That is the gift of meditation. That's something Meditation gives us a, a place to explore that capacity and to strengthen that capacity, to be honest with how you feel, to have the capacity to be more intimate with how you feel without being overwhelmed by the content. I'm talking about, in, in the traditional sense, of what is called the preliminary practices or the preparation practices. 
You know, some people kind of sometimes feel, oh, this is so ritualistic and yeah, prayers and so on. Let's, let's go on, you know, let's do the meditation practice. Uh, but actually, creating a safe place for yourself, really authentically, you know, a felt sense of safety, a felt sense of being held, for some people that can take years and years and years because of trauma. One uh, kind of gift in trauma-informed Dharma practice is, and I think we know the knowledge about trauma and the research around trauma, it shouldn't be just the psychologist and the therapist knowing about it. Everyone should know about it. And of course, we don't need to be, become experts yeah, uh, but it's really so helpful in understanding yourself. So one of the possibilities, if if we consider trauma is or gifts is, we might find out why certain practices just don't work for us. They don't work. Loving kindness meditation does it work for you? Tonglen, does it really work for you? Or do we do just the motions, may all beings be happy or something like this? But does it really help to get you into a felt sense of tenderness, of kindness, of compassion, of care for yourself and for everyone who comes into your field? So understanding Lovingly understanding, of course. So that's very important. You know, it's not like your heart, let's say, out of certain reasons, because you weren't held in, in your, in your childhood. And there's degrees, of course. Uh, for some of us, our parents were emotionally more available. But for most of us, they weren't. Again, trauma can give some explanations there, at least in my family history. Yeah. Obviously, my parents were not capable of really holding me because they were born with fathers who were traumatized by the Second World War and they were born in the last years of the war. They went through hunger periods. Of course, they couldn't they couldn't be a holding environment for little Stefan. So what did little Stefan decide? Little Stefan decides, I need to take care of myself because there's nobody there. Yeah? And he became really good at it. So let's say you can recognize something like that also in you. What that means is there's a lack of trust. There's a sense of disconnection. I can't trust anyone. You bring that into your Dharma practice. How the heck will Stefan Pender... <laughs> no, Stefan. I was not Stefan Pender. How the heck will Stefan really be able to trust a teacher. 
devotion. He can make the motions and the prayers and stuff like that, but it doesn't reach there because there is that deep mistrust. I need to take care of this one by myself. Nobody else can has the capacity to hold me. It's 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 okay. Yeah, so don't don't worry. Yeah, of course it's also a resource to be extremely self-reliant. But it's obvious that an experience like that makes it difficult to do certain certain to, to really embody certain aspects of the teachings. I, I don't know how I how I got that here. So <laughs> I about the, the resources that you have. Yeah, so right. No, what I'm talking about right now is to create a safe place. Traditionally Ah, there's so much I want to tell you, so it's like <laughs> finding a safe place, finding so yeah, so that's why I made that little thing into my childhood. To develop a sense of feeling safe and feeling held. So the Tibetan tradition gives us a lot of things there. If we find out with time it doesn't work, I really recommend to get help. Because you can do these prayers, these practices for decades. And it will not work. But for many, because uh, our parents did a good enough job, uh, we can uh, start that healing process within the context of traditional practices. So what are the ingredients of creating a safe place? And one important ingredient of that is the Sangha being together. Being together in a place like we are here now, and the online people are here with us, and really appreciating that. Putting in the work to connect with the Sangha. No, it's not like we're coming here together and the important thing is the teacher and what he says. No, the coffee break is much more important. I wouldn't say much more important, but it is important. What is important is to work together, to do something together, to create a space like this together, to engage yourself. Relationships to a teacher, to, the, to your fellow travelers, they need to be cultivated. They need to be lived.
very important. Just by being together as a Sangha, we create a field where we can look together, we can witness together. In the same way, if you would work on, on something in you with a therapist, what makes that possible is the emp empathic, and that's the main thing, is the empathic witnessing from another person. So in the same way as a Sangha, we create a, a witnessing together, a loving witnessing, an empathic witnessing. And we start to understand, I'm not alone with this. We are in this together. We are the same, with different flavors of pain, different flavors of struggles, but, but we are the same. We can look at this together. The space becomes bigger within which these patterns can be looked at. It's such a relief. You know, if you are in a, in a Sangha, when people share, for example, their struggles with their meditation practice, or they share how difficult it is for them, even if they get all these teachings to to be with anger. It's such a it's it's because in that moment the space which is looking at this pattern becomes bigger. It's it's not just like me. So part of the Sangha is also the presence of the lineage. Here in this room, symbolized you know, by the teachers, by the tankas. We are sons and daughters of this lineage. They protect us. They, they are also human beings. And they, they did this work. So again, you invite a sense of that loving presence, of that loving gaze. In my own life, since I said about that lack of trust, the first time I put my heart into the hands of another person was Lama Sopa Rinpoche. Before, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have imagined to listen to someone telling me what to practice and what to do, where to go and where to live. Because I, I, I'm so self-reliant. So devotion, trust into the lineage, into these teachings. Yeah. I take refuge into Buddha, maybe embodied by a certain teacher or a group of teachers. I take refuge into the Dharma. I trust these teachings. I, I trust these teachings and I trust, trust this lineage more than my own habitual patterns of fear, of not wanting to look, I trust the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha.
So at home, for your, for your home, I really encourage you to make yourself a safe place where you can sit down. The best is like a room. Uh, not many people have that luxury. Yeah? But the best would be to have a sacred place at home. Your sacred place. Which you, which you, uh, uh, which you create in exact, in, in your way, in your personal way. That it should be different than any other sacred room. And usually it is. If you look into different places, and I do that, you know, because when I travel somewhere, I, I often stay with people. They, these, the altars and, and where people sit and meditate, they are always different. They are very personal. People choose the images, the reminders, the texts, the colors, and then have, having places like this. I haven't been in Nalanda for like, I don't know, 12 years or something, but there is a Nalanda in me. It's the monastery where I was trained. There's a I know it's there. I know Bodhgaya is there. I know that Svayambunat is there. I know that Bodhanath is there. Kopan. These are my safe places. These are my power places. I can go there if I want. But inside I can go there at any time. Which are your safe places? Retreat places? Churches, maybe in nature, sacred places. And of course you could say, yeah, but it's like we need to be independent from outer circumstances. Yeah, that's right, uh, at one point. But, but right now, I think most of us, we can benefit from symbols, from places from being there with other people, from practicing together. And these, uh, these places, these groups, they are precious. Do something for them. Of course, in the beginning, you go to places like that and to groups, you know, thinking, oh, what, what can I learn here? What can I get out of this? But at one point, to really benefit, you need to ask yourself, what can I give? What can I help? How can I support this? They are so precious. It's, it's an integral aspect of traditional practice. Um, the body. So what we, uh, I think we, we do the meditation after the break. I will lead to the first meditation after. I got into talking now. Uh, so the body, the posture, is such a precious mudra. It's a precious symbol to explore the meditation posture, to explore movement, to explore and be aware of how you hold yourself. It's amazing if you look into the 
like the kind of Western research into that, the connection of body posture and emotional states. This body is a sacred temple. It's both, yeah? It's the container of that which needs healing. And that which needs healing in you is that which needs healing in the world. There's a purification for, of, of, of karma or healing of trauma is not something private. We do that for everyone because we are interconnected. It's not like egoistical or like, oh, yeah, this is like I'm, I'm on my healing, my healing work. Yeah, no, you practice your healing, your healing work for the benefit of all. And of course, you start there, uh, which is closest to you, which is your own body. When I talk about collective trauma, collective tra uh, uh, karma, it becomes more obvious that an aspect of how you feel in this time with the war in the Ukraine, with corona, with the climate collapse, with the fact that the easy decades where we lived are finished, it, there's no going back. So, part of how you feel today, this week's, is connected with the situation around us. It's connected with a collective anxiety. It's collected collective field of sadness, helplessness. So, then it becomes even more obvious how working with your own restlessness, with your own anxiety, how that is your contribution for world peace. What we also learn in karma is one of the four aspects of karma is that karma is expandable. When we explore karma, we start to understand everything matters. Everything matters. Each movement of your heart, each wave of tenderness towards yourself matters. We don't need to think of, oh, what, how can I, how can I help? I mean, we can think about it and maybe we can do something. How can I, can we help the people in, in the Ukraine? Yeah. Definitely we can help them by looking inside and working with ourselves. Because everything matters. It's not like if you do some healing work in yourself, it's not limited to this physical body. It's a gift, it's, it's a wave which goes out into the whole earth. We don't need to think, ah, oh, I can't do anything. It's, uh, no, of course we can do it every day. 
we can make a difference. When we study the teachings on karma, we understand karma is expandable. One smile you plant into the, into the, into the world, it, it goes, it travels. So the body, yeah, the posture. Now feeling the earth, the groundedness of the earth. The earth is always carrying you. You don't need to do anything. And she doesn't make any difference. She's holding all of us. I'm talking about creating a safe place where we are able to become more intimate with our inner life without being overwhelmed by it. So, groundedness. Take care of this body, of the posture. Support the openness and the flexibility of your body through breathing, through yoga, through body work. Very, very important. I have observed so many people now, like since 25 years, in their practice. And there's some people who study and study and study, and nothing happens. It's in some traditions, the body is, is, not, is not addressed. So exploring how, and it doesn't need to be in a posture like this, lying down. You know, the four meditation postures. Lying down, standing, walking, sitting. The sitting posture is one of the four postures the Buddha taught. And they, they have no... The sitting is, is number one, and then, okay, if you can't sit, then you lie down. It's not like that. And the, the meditation posture is... It's like uh, you have the support, the strength, you feel the strength in, in being held by the, the earth, the spine. But also what that does is that you can become more vulnerable, more soft. Your belly can soften. Your breathing can deepen. And when your belly softens and your breathing deepens, you become, you get, it's more likely that you can connect with the unresolved in you. And at the same time, you have that stability, which helps you then not to be overwhelmed by what is coming up. And then, you know, some of you, you, you know the kind of traditional um, preparation preliminary practice, you know, seven in the Lamrim teachings, like making offerings, creating a sense of joy, of inspiration, of, of giving, which increases your vitality, your presence. This is so important. What can, what kind of practices bring that sense of joy. Playing music, art, 
No? For some people, making an offering is playing music, making art, to show, to share. You can feel how that can lift up your spirit. So, and then the last thing, and then we have a break. I talked about the importance of Sangha. In one of the connected, connectedness within a Sangha comes that we have the same kind of questions, that we have the same kind of intention. Slightly different, yeah, but it kind of goes into the same direction. One of the symptoms of a traumatic experience is a sense of helplessness, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of losing meaning. Losing meaning. To wander aimlessly around. Nothing makes sense. Supported by 300 years of materialistic, reductional science which says you are just some brain jelly and life is about being productive and consuming, having as much as good experience as possible and then die. That's really sad. And you can see in, the, in people who are younger than us, so many of them are lost. No direction, no, no, no vision, because it's all meaningless. That common vision, uh, which then maybe in its full bloom, it's called bodhicitta. That is part of creating a safe place. to have a vision, to have a goal, an intention. And bodhicitta, you know, the awakening heart, is based on the trust and the beginning of the beginning of the experience of your inner beauty. That's what bodhicitta is based on. Bodhicitta is based on the time-tested experience that we all have, undestructible, this inner beauty. And bodhicitta says that this life, the precious human life, is our opportunity to uncover that inner beauty because your inner beauty, this inner beauty is so needed in the world. Starting to connect with, and inner beauty is, I'm just using inner beauty as another word for Buddha nature or Rigpa or the nature of mind or 
non-dual awareness or you know whatever. It's it's good to you know sometimes throw throw in a new a new word. The the Tibetan path is a path of uncovering the inner beauty for the benefit of all. And uncover from what? From karma and trauma. Because that are the the conditioned pattern which seems to obscure the, the Buddha within, the goddess within. So the taking refuge, connecting with bodhicitta, which also means to connect, to have at least a glimpse of that inner beauty, of that inner potential in your heart of wisdom and love. The sun, as Lama Yeshe describes it, the sun, the indestructible sun of wisdom and love in the essence of our being. And you are actually that. It's not, it's not that you have it. You are that. You are not the condition. You are not what is stored in the alaya vijnaya. Yes, your sense of identification often collapses into the alaya vijnaya, into the personality, into the defense mechanism, into the fears, into the depression. But you are not that. And this weekend I'm going to prove that to you. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.